0: Hi, this is the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. My kids have introduced me to the phrase, it's a whole vibe. I'm pretty sure it is used when they're talking about how a place or context feels, particularly when that place is strongly influenced by a particular person. So classrooms have a vibe. Some classrooms are positive and motivating and others are less so. I know when I teach, I try to establish a positive vibe from the first day of class, but it's not totally up to me. Sometimes my attempts to create a positive vibe work, and sometimes they don't, or sometimes they work for some students but not others. I'd like to better understand classroom vibes and how to shape them more intentionally, which is why I was so engaged by Dr. Christy Robinson's new article, An Educational Psychologist on Motivational Climate Theory. And that's why I'm so eager to talk to her today. Trust me, her article is a whole vibe, a very positive one. Dr. Christy A. Robinson is an assistant professor in the Department of Educational and Counseling Psychology at McGill University, where she directs the Motivation, Identity, Learning, and Education in STEM Lab. In her research, she examines how and why students' motivation changes over time, with the aim of understanding how educational settings can meet students' diverse motivational needs. She has received recognition as one of the top-producing early career scholars and one of the top-producing women in educational psychology research. Her work has been funded by the American Educational Research Association and by Quebec and Canadian government agencies. And today we're talking about Christy's 2023 article, an educational psychologist entitled Motivational Climate Theory, Disentangling Definitions and Roles of Classroom Motivational Support, Climate and Microclimates. So, Christy, congratulations on the article. I really appreciate you joining me today to talk about it.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jeff.
0: So let's start here. You know, what inspired you to write this article?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, It was really inspired by questions I've been asking myself and trying to answer myself over the past few years. You know, I've done a lot of work on how students' motivation changes over time, but I've always been interested in the why behind that too. You know, why, why does their motivation change over time? How can we help them have a really great motivational trajectory and motivational experience? So I've really always wanted to know, how could we design classrooms and activities and teaching strategies, things like that, to be more supportive of students' motivation, right? But I, I found studying this was harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> uh, like from a very practical perspective, I had a hard time finding measures uh, for the processes I was interested in. So, you know, as I dug deeper to try and make sense of that, uh, of these measures that I was finding or not finding, I didn't really see easy ways to decide between these measures or to understand when and how they should be applied or how should we be thinking about modeling these processes. And that's just from a quantitative perspective, right? There's a whole Mm -hmm. other can of worms when you think about qualitatively capturing teacher supports, uh, climate, all those related processes. So my big questions that I really kept returning to over and over were how can we understand links or lack of links between what teachers are doing and how students are responding and, and really that's for any psychological outcome but in this case you know I was focusing primarily on motivation so how can we understand how context and psychological processes function together and really how should we study this I, I wasn't finding uh, really satisfying answers to those questions so mm-hmm. I kept seeing more and more a need for some organization in all these terms and constructs I was finding right. and, and some clarification on, on what we think they're like. You know, where does one begin and one end and how are they related to each other and distinct from each other, those kind of mm-hmm. things. And, and that's what I was trying to carve off a piece of in this piece.
0: Well, that's a wonderful way to approach an article for educational psychologists, right? Kind of what's out there that we need to better understand and how can we conceptualize it? So I'm really glad that you've conceptualized your motivational climate theory. And, you know, you argue that these motivational processes that you were seeing, there's kind of three broad categories of them. So there's motivational supports, there's motivational climate, and then there's motivational microclimates. And so we should probably talk about each, and it might be helpful for our listeners if you provided maybe an example of each too. So let's start with motivational supports. What are those?
1: Yeah, sure, definitely. So motivational supports are what is actually happening in the classroom. These are things we can observe and things that people in the setting like a teacher could, in theory, control. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are things that are relevant for shaping people's motivation in that setting. So examples of motivational supports would be things like uh, whether or not a teacher gives feedback and the quality of that feedback or the mm-hmm. frequency of that feedback. Mm-hmm. All of those are relevant for shaping students' confidence and or, or their expectancy for success, right, related related constructs there. Mm -hmm. teachers aren't the only ones who could be doing motivational supports in a setting. Students can really enact those too. Like they're Mm -hmm. talking about having a growth mindset that can be maybe infectious. Or if a student is displaying a lot of enthusiasm for what they're doing, that could also be motivating for students around them. Mm -hmm. So students are providing inputs too. Mm -hmm. And I also really want to acknowledge that supports can come in the form of class policies or school policies, Mm -hmm. interventions count as supports, right, because someone is manipulating something in the learning setting, like asking Mm -hmm. students to write essays about the relevance of the material that they're learning, for example, that would be an attempt to support their motivation by boosting their perceptions that the material is relevant, right, so that Mm -hmm. would be a support.
0: So that's, that distinction between supports and then uh, climate, as you talk about in your article, is, is really important, right? Because my understanding is it's not a direct line. It's not necessarily the case that every support leads directly to the kind of climate the support was intended to create. So can you talk to us about motivational climates and microclimates and kind of why you differentiated them from support?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love how you introduced the episode with the discussion of vibes. <laughs> we talk about vibes quite a lot in the lab here because sometimes we think students answer questions about climate with not as many thoughts as vibes, um, for example. <laughs> but yeah, climate is how the class feels, right? So the climate is this shared or consensus perception of how motivationally supportive the setting is. And I really like a phrase from uh, Lisa Bardock and her colleagues. They called this a shared mental image, Mm -hmm. right? It's something Mm -hmm. like a a classroom culture um, where people in that context can really identify or point to some shared, I don't know, experiences or values, or it could be any number of things that characterize what really is motivating or demotivating or sort of neutral about that context. Mm -hmm. So I think of this as maybe how groups of students might distinguish one teacher or classroom experience from another. I I hear my my own children talking about their classrooms like this, right? Like, oh, we can generally agree that Mrs. S is much more controlling, whereas Mr. M gives us a lot of choice in our Mm -hmm. learning. But on Mm -hmm. the other hand, Mrs. S gives us a lot more detailed feedback, whereas Mr. M gives us less structure. So it's up to us to figure out how to learn that kind of thing.. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's kind of the climate piece. okay. Is this shared perception or kind of a shared narrative. So microclimates, how do we distinguish a microclimate? That would be the individual or subgroup perceptions that differ from the group's shared perception. like, Maybe we generally agree that Mrs. S is more controlling than Mr. M. And for some students, this means they go around warning everyone not to take her class. But for those students who are thinking of Mrs. S as controlling, their microclimate is not an autonomy-supportive one. But there might be other students in that same exact classroom that really think she's not too controlling for them, right? Mm -hmm. So they might Mm -hmm. disagree with their peers in how they talk about or respond to survey questions about her teaching. So for those students... Their microclimate is a more motivationally supportive one. They're less likely to be harmed by the teacher's controlling style.
0: So that distinction strikes me as super important, right? That there's kind of an overall climate um, that we could think about, but then there are these microclimates that could be really different. And there's this kind of dynamic interaction between the teacher and the supports. And the climate and the students, and so it all sounds really complex. And you, in the article, actually described it from a complex system point of view. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that, and how we should think about it?
1: Certainly. And and I have to confess, I'm just not an expert in complex systems or dynamic systems. So this is based on my limited understanding. But um, I think we have to acknowledge. The classrooms are complex. There's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of people in there all doing their thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they're interacting with each other and they're affecting each other and they're doing things all day and every day over time. So mm-hmm. time matters and individual people matter and their behaviors matter. So when you think of how that maps onto thinking about complex dynamic systems, so the classroom climate we have to think of as being more than just the sum of its parts, right? It has to be emergent. It has to be open to outside influences. And the thing that I continue coming back to in my own mind when I think of climates as complex systems is that we have a lot of components that are the various teacher and student behaviors and other things that can all have different weights and different Mm -hmm. salience and different impact across different contexts and times, right? Mm -hmm. So today, the teacher could provide this really clear explanation of a math problem, and that might be just the thing to set the tone for a climate that supports students' confidence, Mm -hmm. Great, But it won't have that same exact effect tomorrow, maybe, right? right? Tomorrow, what might be important for the climate would be like a worn out and disengaged attitude from two very visible class members or something, right? It could be something totally different. Mm
0: So it it sounds like, and it does sound very complex, by the way, (laughs) very dynamic, but it, it sounds like teachers and other people in these systems kind of have to adjust, right? They have to kind of understand what the climate and the microclimates are, and then their beliefs and their practices and the students' beliefs and their actions. It sounds like they're constantly having to kind of interact with one another, and teachers are having to adjust that to try to optimize the climate. Is that one way of thinking about it?
1: I think so. Yeah, I think teachers have one of the hardest jobs in the world for that reason. So teachers who are successfully navigating that, right, taking the temperature and adjusting their uh, behaviors to try to keep it going. <laughs> that's, a, mm-hmm. that's a real expert's job.
0: Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, super difficult. So that suggests to me that there are ways that motivational climates kind of vary from classroom to classroom, but also day to day or even kind of moment to moment. So what are some of those ways that motivational climates vary that we should be paying attention to?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question and an important question. Because again, if, if my brain always wants to go quantitative it'd be really easy to say things that are maybe overly simplifying this issue of how things vary, right? So maybe I just look at some different classrooms and I say, oh, this classroom or this teacher does more of this motivational support than these other teachers, or I can count how many motivational supports I see. So definitely that's probably right, that Mm -hmm. uh, motivational supports vary in number. And then our motivational climate that would arise from those supports would also be different, but I think what's maybe even more interesting than that is how they will differ qualitatively from each other. Mm-hmm. If I can kind of characterize a teacher's motivational support style and then try to link that to, okay, what's the climate that's coming out, and what's the climate that's arising in students' minds, right, as a result of that pattern of support, then I think that's where the magic happens in our research we can start to, okay, point to what are some super important behaviors that teachers can return to at key times to then create the kind of climate they're aiming for, and what are some that we might not recommend or that aren't being as effective as we think they should be, and can we tease out why, right?
0: So from what I'm hearing, it sounds like teachers have a big influence upon motivational climate. So I'm assuming that those climates are changeable. So kind of how do we think about climates and how they change and who can change them?
1: Yeah, that that is a really important part of it, is we have to assume climates are malleable. (laughs) We can put in some different inputs, whether that's the way that the students are behaving, the way the teacher is, is teaching, and make changes. So. I think there's really great work, a lot of bodies of evidence that show teachers change their practices just naturally, right? From Mm -hmm. day to day and even moment to moment, the, Mm -hmm. the ways that they're teaching those change. Another way we can think about malleability is, is it possible for us as researchers to intervene or to design ways for uh, teachers to create really motivating experiences for students and Mm -hmm. i think the answer to that is yes i think we still have work to do to understand the best ways to do that in addition to the really great work that's out there of course so yeah malleability differences between different classrooms but also over time
0: right and then it sounds like there's also differences in those microclimates and kind of how motivational supports are perceived by different kinds of students like it sounds like there's a i think the word used was relativity across different students can you talk to us about that
1: absolutely yeah that also is a really important part of it because students come into their learning experiences not as blank slates but you know as people with with background experiences and importantly historical experiences probably with the teacher they're interacting with right and with the Mm -hmm. other students in the classroom as soon as They've been in that classroom more than once then they have history So they're bringing that history with them as well so I like to think of this distinction maybe between uh, A support and a climate or a microclimate as like intent versus impact Mm -hmm. Right, like Mm -hmm. in general we kind of like to assume that if a teacher does something that's motivationally supportive then students should all generally perceive it that way. And then their motivation should increase or should stay high. But anyone who's ever been in a classroom knows that can definitely happen, but it's often much more messy than that, right? So intent versus impact, like an example that's maybe a little silly, but Jeff, I might come in here and compliment your excellent podcasting skills with Mm -hmm. the intent to make you feel good about your accomplishments and create a pleasant vibe for a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And the impact of that compliment is hopefully that you actually do feel good about your accomplishments, but maybe I say it really quickly and you don't hear it, right? So mm-hmm. it's not perceived. Or maybe I say it in a way that sounds sarcastic to you, so mm-hmm. it actually has mm-hmm. the opposite effect, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. the impact of my attempt would be different from my intent to be supportive.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it reminds me of the framing that you introduced for the ideas in this paper. We talked about kind of incorporating sociocultural and anti-racist perspectives into your work. And it sounds like something that we need to think about when we're providing motivational supports is that different students might hear or perceive our supports differently based upon their sociocultural or historical background.
1: Absolutely, I think that's super important, and I think that's a really important thing that we, as a field, continue developing our knowledge. And I point to myself too. I, I personally, am actively working on developing my knowledge about mm-hmm. how motivation is cultural and situated. Mm-hmm. So supports and climates they're also culturally bound, right? They're they're part of a socio-historic context. I think this is super important for um, addressing gaps and opportunities for. Motivationally supportive instruction, right? Like trying to identify ways that teachers can create a motivationally supportive climate by connecting with and really running with students' cultural assets in the classroom. And, and perhaps trying to identify ways now that teachers might unintentionally limit students' opportunities by centering white culture and norms or just by centering their own cultures and norms, right? I try to look at myself as an instructor, how am I maybe unintentionally? speaking just from my own perspective and not trying to, get at or, or leverage the really unique and diverse perspectives of the students in my classroom, connect with those and mm-hmm. try to make the classroom examples and classroom activities really relevant. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Yeah. So just like there's culturally relevant pedagogy, there's probably culturally relevant motivational supports and culturally relevant motivational adjustments and, and relativity and malleability that's necessary for teachers to try to to manage again in this very complex and dynamic environment.
1: Absolutely. And and I found some really interesting work on, I think it was by Heimovitz and Dweck on, I think, I forget what they call them, like the way that they think about how they can motivate students, mm-hmm. it's like their motivational mm-hmm. mindset or something like that. Right. It's like a whole set of beliefs, right, that we carry around in our own minds as mm-hmm. instructors or teachers. How malleable do I think my students' motivation is? Right. And what do I think my role is there and what tools do i have in my toolkit to to help Mm -hmm. that happen Mm -hmm. Uh, i think that's super interesting to think
0: about yeah so again we get back to this very dynamic and complex ecosystem where as you're describing teachers' beliefs about students' motivations and their malleability or fixedness can actually affect what kinds of supports they provide or how they're provided, what kind of examples they're using, and then in turn can really affect, I guess it can affect both groups of students and individual students. Is that accurate?
1: I I think that's accurate, yeah, right? Like there's that work on differential expectations, right, that Mm -hmm. the teachers have for different individual students or for Mm -hmm. different students based on their race or ethnicity or their gender, Mm -hmm. And then the teacher might not mean to do it, right? But they might kind of unconsciously enact different supports for those students based on what they expect they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that extends to what the teacher might expect the student is capable of motivationally, right? Mm-hmm. Are they capable of feeling confident? Should I even try to help them feel confident? Or is it a lost right. cause? Same thing. Is it is it worthwhile to try to get this particular student interested in this or should I spend that energy elsewhere? That's a super cynical view. <laughs> sure, <of course. laughs> uh, I don't think teachers are going through that calculus too much, but it might mm-hmm. be operating unconsciously.
0: Sure, absolutely. And then, you know, I really encourage our listeners to check out your article for lots of reasons, but one of them is you have a great figure on there in which you really highlight everything you've talked about and then also kind of how student behaviors can affect motivational climate and then how school and community policies, which you mentioned earlier, how those things can kind of affect, I guess, both the teachers and the students, right? Like policy can affect both teachers and students in a particular classroom, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So think about even just the limits on time that the teachers have, right? Like Mm -hmm. they might really believe in the importance of doing lots of relevance examples, like telling cool stories or doing fun and exciting science experiments or providing choices and opportunities for students to try things out. But realistically, they have to often get through a certain amount of material in a limited amount of time. So they can't do everything they might want to do.
0: Yeah. yeah totally.
1: So the policies like that, and there could also be explicit policies about, you know, what teachers can and can't do to motivate students, right? Even like I think of the the pizza rewards I got as a kid in school, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. intrinsic yeah. rewards for the win, right? Um, did yeah. we unintentionally, like, chip away at students' intrinsic desire to read <laughs> sure. by giving pizza, just at least for some students? Um, I think no, there's no. great work on that, too, but mm-hmm. things like that come from outside a particular teacher's choices, right? And they can Mm -hmm. definitely have either an expansive effect or limiting effect or just like a a way of constraining the qualitative climate or the possibilities for creating a certain climate that a teacher can have, right? They don't have every single power to create whatever they want to create because Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. do have school policies and laws that, that govern what happens in the classroom.
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, in the United States right now, as we're recording, some states are passing laws that certain books, you know, can't be shared in classrooms, books about LGBTQIA issues or books about race. And, you know, I could see how that'd be really demotivating or at least limit the kinds of supports that some teachers could provide for some students. Right. And that's another kind of policy level thing that can really affect the kinds of supports that could be offered as well as the climates and microclimates that result.
1: Yes, absolutely. And you raising that reminds me of something really important, which is any of these factors, including what's going on in our news, right? historic stuff. Mm-hmm. These things can impact how we view what's happening in the classroom. So right, this, right. me as a teacher, I might do the same exact thing last year and this year, but because there's so many difficult things going on in the news right now, right? I could say something and my students might really be on alert right? They might be looking for or sensitive to mm-hmm. things that they might not have been as sensitive to you know, last year. I think it's really important for us to consider whatever is happening in our culture, our classrooms are microcosms of that. Absolutely. So yeah, even that example of, oh, I'm not allowed to read this anymore. That's a, an alarming example.
0: <laughs> for sure. For sure. So I, I think it's really clear that your article and your motivational climate theory is really rich. I mean, it's really organizing a number of different ideas that are existing in the literature in a helpful way, and then pointing to a lot of really generative directions for future research. What are some of the promising directions for future research that you're excited about?
1: Yeah, so many things. I think we talked a little bit about, you know, continuing to develop our collective knowledge and individuals as researchers, developing our knowledge of culture and, and the situated nature of supports and of climates, Mm -hmm. right? So trying to understand the why, when, and for whom, what are the conditions under which certain supports work or don't work, right? To Mm -hmm. shift the Mm -hmm. climate and then shift students associated outcomes. That's really important. Mm -hmm. So one way that I think we can attack that problem is to combine different kinds of data together. So direct observations of what's actually happening alongside student perception data Mm-hmm. trying to disentangle supports from climates, from microclimates. If we really want to make strong recommendations for practice, we have to have stronger knowledge about what teachers are actually doing and how students respond to it, mm-hmm. right? We, mm-hmm. we need to know when and how and for whom teachers' motivational supports are more or less likely to translate into positively motivational climates and microclimates. Mm-hmm. That's what I've been thinking about.
0: Very cool. And, you know, thoughts about kind of how your work informs motivation interventions or how we should think about motivation interventions?
1: Yeah, that is a good question. Actually, I think one of the reasons I got so obsessed with these ideas was because I did an intervention for my dissertation mm-hmm. and it did not work. Yeah, I got to thinking a lot about, okay, so let's take a step back and think about what was happening in this context, and what are the key ingredients that I need to have in my understanding of the context before I even think about design for an intervention in this context. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the longer term goals of this writing that I was doing here is to kind of develop a system or a process of how do you go in and kind of efficiently assess a setting and work with people in that setting Right. To figure out, okay what do we even need and and what what might be some great avenues for inner intervention? I know there are scholars doing really great work along that front. Mm -hmm. So interventions, absolutely. I think understanding the climate in a particular context is something that can make or break your intervention. Right. Like that work on psychological affordances, being a really important moderator of intervention effects. Very, very, I think they definitely overlap, like climates and interventions. They work together. There's no intervention that is contextless, right?
0: Yeah, and I've seen a lot of work on interventions that are doing exactly what you say. They're trying to address the climate, they're trying to address students' dispositions and knowledge and perceptions. And, you know, the interaction of those things is really important to take into account. And as you said, you know, there's no kind of contextless intervention. Intervention And so your article, um, I think will really help people who are interested in those more, you know, kind of seed and soil type motivation interventions, help them to better understand what they should be thinking about in the classroom and the different kinds of supports, climates and microclimates. So, so thank you for writing the article. It's fantastic. And I really encourage our listeners to check it out. I know that also many of our listeners are thinking about or hoping to someday write an article for educational psychologists and so as someone who has done that successfully i just wonder if you have any advice or tips to share
1: yeah definitely first at the at the risk of sounding like you asked me to say this which you definitely did not um (laughs) (laughs) i'll say the co-editors of the journal are incredibly helpful and responsive so If people are at all still on the fence about, you know, whether your piece is a good fit for the journal, I would say don't hesitate to reach out Mm -hmm, to Jeff and Lisa because they are really helpful on that front. I also knew this before based on what you and Lisa and others had said, but I experienced for myself how invested you and the reviewers are in nurturing Mm -hmm. and developing promising ideas throughout that review and revision process. So you and the reviewers all gave incredibly helpful and very detailed guidance that really shaped what the article became. I changed my own mind on pretty important things throughout the process of initially writing it, even before review, and then even during the review and revision process. So that process for me was a really pleasant learning experience that has helped me develop as a thinker and a writer and a scholar one maybe practical piece of advice i had never written a theoretical piece before and this mm-hmm. was also my first solo authored paper so what was helpful for me was getting a few different kinds of feedback at a few different stages mm-hmm. from scholars i respect so before submitting and even before i had a full even outline i got very early informal feedback on my ideas just from talking with colleagues and then As I got closer to a full draft, I had a a close colleague read it in full and tell me if I was crazy or not. (laughs) Um, And his feedback really helped me think more about especially organization and logical flow of ideas, right? Because I, at least, was really used to the format of an empirical paper, and this was something new. So I think format is Mm -hmm. difficult to kind of wrap your head around. Mm -hmm. But I think my main piece of advice is definitely submit your work to educational psychologists.
0: (laughs) Well, I, I really like that advice. I'm glad that you had such a good experience through the review process. And I suspect part of the reason for that is because you did this kind of pre-review, I call it, you know, where you, you talk to people a lot and you test your ideas that way. And then you seek out trusted colleagues to read your manuscript before you submit it. I think that's really helpful. So I think that was a wise thing to do and it clearly showed in the work that you submitted. I would also double down on the advice that you mentioned in the beginning, which is, you know, if people have an idea they're interested in, even it's just an idea they're more than welcome to reach out to either myself or my co-editor, Lisa Lindenbrink-Garcia, or really any journal editor, I think would be open to this and just kind of send an email and say, you know, thinking about this, what do you think? Any, Any initial feedback? I think that can be a useful way to get an initial kind of level set of like, you know, is this something that might seem promising or not? Because our journal really wants to publish great work and we can't if we don't know about it. So it's always helpful to hear from authors and and explore their ideas. So the review process is rigorous. You know, it's not an easy journal to get published in, but we hope that's a positive process. So I'm glad it was for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really appreciate the work that you and Lisa have done to uncover what can be kind of hidden curriculum sometimes, right? Like, is it cool to email you or not? Yes, it's cool. <laughs> like, that's that's not always something we we know, right? <laughs> <Just> Absolutely. intuitively. <laughs>
0: yeah, totally cool. Hopefully we give off a positive vibe. That's my hope. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your current scholarship. What are you working on that you're excited about?
1: Yeah, so right now, some colleagues and I are working on developing better measures of motivational climate and microclimates. Mm-hmm. So big surprise there. Mm-hmm. So as part of that, we're doing a literature review of all the motivational climate measure so student perception measures right mm. that that we could find that is very interesting and kind of messy as another part of that we just finished a round of data collection for a think aloud study mm. we we asked students what they're thinking about and what information they're relying on to answer questions about their instructors motivationally supportive practices mm. <laughs> that is fascinating stuff. Um, We're kind of modeling that after a 2007 paper by Stuart Karabennick and colleagues. I would love Mm -hmm. to see more think aloud papers because Mm -hmm. I think students aren't thinking about what we think they're thinking about sometimes. And it's very illuminating to know that. So that's exciting. Next up, I'm working with students in my lab to combine a bunch of cohorts of data we've collected over the past few years to do a few different things, for example, to try to disentangle climates from microclimates and link those to observed instructor supports. We're also hoping to do a study comparing students' motivation in different domains, right? The same student, mm. but different domains. And then we're also hoping to do a mixed method study focused on motivational trajectories and experiences of students from traditionally minoritized groups in STEM. So mm. we're very excited about these projects right now.
0: Yeah, fascinating. That's. It sounds like you're busy, first of all, uh, <laughs> in a good way. But a lot of really intriguing projects involving multiple modalities of data collection and addressing uh, really important issues. So I'm excited to see that work when it gets published. Thanks. Well, that seems like a great place to wrap it up for today. I really encourage our listeners to check out Christy's article in Educational Psychologist entitled Motivational Climate Theory, Disentangling Definitions and Roles of Classroom Motivational Support, Climate, and Microclimates. So Christy, kudos on publishing these ideas, and thanks so much for talking to me about them today.
1: It's been super fun. Thank you, Jeff.
0: And finally, listeners, if you enjoyed the podcast, I encourage you to check out our other episodes on your favorite podcast app. Please consider rating and reviewing us, and you can also go to the APA Division 15 website, We have all the podcasts there in the publication section. Thanks again for listening.